Good morning. You can take your Bibles out and turn to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We closed out last week with a rather sobering message as we looked at Jesus' words concerning the, the end of all persons who die in unbelief, namely being hell. We were reminded that was a topic that Jesus spoke quite frequently on, more frequently, in fact, than that of love. And yet it was because of love that he taught on such a sobering and serious topic. It was with the same heart, the same motivation as he stood there on the mountains overlooking Jerusalem and wept over that great city and so many souls of unbelief. Well, as Jesus concluded that teaching that night to his disciples, and as he concluded really the beginning of what was predominantly instruction through parables, we come to the end of chapter 13 in verse 53, where upon finishing these parables, Jesus departs from there. The text that we're going to look at this morning is somewhat unique, just in really what it tells us about Jesus. We've seen rejection, we have seen those who have refused to believe, but we see rejection in a rather unique way this morning. You've likely heard the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. And while this axiom or this maxim is by no means absolute, it is instructive. Because there's really two ways that this can happen when we are in close proximity to persons or have developed familiarity with a person. It's not to say that this always happens, but it does frequently enough for a saying like this to ring true. First, there's the possibility that once you've spent a great deal of time with a person, you become put off. Perhaps it's by their character or habits. And so familiarity has revealed something regarding the character of another that leads to this contempt. And while it may be true that the character of a person isn't what you thought it to be, and perhaps their idiosyncrasies rub you the wrong way. This idea of contempt is, well, really should be far from the Christian's mind. Certainly from our attitude, from what we display for one another. Doesn't mean we rejoice in unrighteousness. But as I was reminded this week, and we were talking about a little bit Thursday morning during our Bible study, I was reminded of some of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. And one such resolution, and I'm paraphrasing, was that whenever you are encountered with another's sin, to use it as a reminder, and this was what he would remind himself of, weekly he would read these resolutions, to not think negatively about the other person, but to use it as a reminder of my own sinfulness, of my own shortcomings, of the ways in which I disappoint people. Sadly, our sinfulness often gets in the way of this, and we find ourselves with some feeling of contempt because of the other person. However, there's a second response that would also prove this proverb true. It's where far from ill character of another, perhaps it's the high character or the achievements of another person. And you grew up with them, you know them, and so jealousy and disdain begin to creep in when you view a peer or someone that you considered an equal elevated. In this situation, our familiarity with someone reveals our own sinfulness. We somehow thought we were as good or better than they were. How, how come they get to have this measure of good fortune or acclaim? 
Our sinful response is to downplay their achievements and abilities. When they experience this good fortune or praised or elevated by others, we feel the need to put them in their place or to try to pull them back, pull them back down to our level. This morning we're going to observe this sinful response by those from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, of these Nazarenes, not a technical sense of a Nazarene or one who had taken a Nazarite vow, but those who lived in the town of Nazareth. We're going to note how their response of unbelief actually teaches us or reminds us of several important truths concerning Christ, truths which should encourage our faith and urge us toward faithful discipleship, but it's all against the stark and the dark and the sad backdrop of their unbelief. So read along with me, if you would, Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simeon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to this time in your ministry of Christ, as you went and returned to your hometown, as you were rejected because of the unbelief, Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Father, the warning here should concern all of us as we all have the tendency to let familiarity, perhaps it's just taking things for granted to slip in and to allow our love to grow cold. We pray that this passage this morning would be a little bit of a wake up, maybe a douse of cold water to just refresh us, to remind us of the riches of your grace, of the mercy that was offered at the cross of the love that has been displayed to us and allow it to rekindle, refresh our love, our passion, and our desire for you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Chapter 12 closed with the appearance of Jesus' family. You may remember that. This is right before he went down to the seashore and taught, began teaching in parables. He was there in the home in Capernaum, likely, uh, likely Peter's home same home where he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. It had been a, something of a base of operations there on the north shore, the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum was a fishing village, a pretty predominant fishing village. And while he had been teaching there that day, probably in the early to mid-morning, his family had shown up. And they had said, uh, they had requested of him to return to his hometown. And you remember that Jesus had Apparently, or at least it looked at first as if he had just rebuked them or rebuffed them. And what he had really done was he had used it as an opportunity 
their appearance as an opportunity, a teaching moment concerning the greater and the more significant relationships that are created within the kingdom of God that supersede, that overrule even the closest of human family relationships. That is not to say that family relationships are unimportant. James reminds us of this, where he says that one who does not care for his own household is worse than an unbeliever. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, the primacy There is a surpassing greatness, closeness that is found in relationship to Jesus Christ. And where family members share that common faith, that bond becomes even greater. And it may have been that while Jesus did not rebuke them, merely used them as an example, a teaching opportunity, he actually agreed to their request. He just delays it a day or two. And I say that because the very next movement, all that has taken place in chapter 13 is a single day. The very next thing that happens at the end of chapter chapter 13 is he does exactly what his family had requested of him. He returns to his hometown. In fact, it's somewhat similar and reminiscent of John chapter 2 when Jesus and some of the disciples show up at that wedding in Cana. They run out of wine. His mother comes to him and says, Here's the problem. We've run out of wine. And he says, woman, what what does that have to do with me? looks like he's rebuking her and he has no intention of doing anything. But what does he do in the very next verse? He then transforms water into wine, the best of the wine. So in a somewhat similar way, Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity, their appearance that is, before acceding to their request and returning to Nazareth. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. We know that from Matthew 2. That's where Jesus had grown up. It was located about eight hour, an eight-hour walk, give or take, southwest of Capernaum. If you took today's, I guess, easiest traveled road, it'd be a little over 30 miles. But if you walked it, you could cut out a few miles, a little more straight path. This was the town where Jesus lived and grew up. It's where he would have played with other children in the streets including his half-brothers. It's where he would have helped fetch water from the well for his mother as the eldest, where he had learned and practiced the work of carpentry under Joseph. By the way, that term carpentry can refer not just to fine woodworking, but to general construction and masonry. It, yes, it did refer, refer at times to wooden instruments and utensils and chairs and things like that, but it was frequently used to describe what may be more equivalent to a day laborer doing rough-in construction or establishing stone walls or laying a foundation. In Matthew 22, 23, we read that Jesus' upbringing in Nazareth was in order to fulfill the words of the prophet. Now, the exact reason why his family had arrived at the end of chapter 12 is not explicitly stated. It's really not known. Perhaps the family had come after hearing of his popularity and ministry and wanted him to return to his hometown to demonstrate the same teaching and miracle working there. Or perhaps it was to restore some relationships and smooth things over from events pertaining to Jesus' previous visit in Luke 4. If you remember that, Jesus stood up, read part of read a small section from the scroll of Isaiah, said this has been fulfilled in your midst, and shortly thereafter a riot was incited against him and they tried to throw him off a cliff. It's not exactly the best of terms to leave your hometown. 
We know from Luke 4 that the hearts of those in Nazareth were already hardening to the gospel. As we read at the end of chapter 13, and we've already read, that that hardness and unbelief has become somewhat solidified. Even among his own half-brothers, there does not appear to be belief in his ministry and message until his, after his resurrection. And sadly, as our text this morning reveals, the hearts of the people of Nazareth have not softened one iota since his last appearance. They are still living in unbelief. Verse 53 through the first half of 54 describe his, what he does upon entering the town. Upon completing, upon entering the town, he goes into the synagogue. And upon completing that teaching in Capernaum, probably the next morning arrives Arrives there later that day. We don't know how long he had been in Nazareth before he began teaching in the synagogue. Probably not more than a day or two. He begins teaching. Verse 54 contains, by the way, Matthew's final reference to Jesus teaching in a synagogue. Doesn't mean he didn't teach anymore. We just have no reference to it if he did. This had been part of Jesus' regular practice to go to the synagogues. It aligns with what Paul did in his ministry to go to the Jew first and later to the Gentile under Paul's ministry. But Jesus' ministry was to appeal to those who should know, who were gathering to worship, who would hear the Torah read, who should have heard through the words of the prophets who Christ was. That is where he first would show up. As we've already noted, it was after reading and briefly teaching in the synagogue during his previous visit to Nazareth that the crowds had tried to throw him from a cliff. So in that regard, Jesus returns to the scene of the crime. And he picks up right where he left off, teaching in the very same synagogue. After teaching the first half of verse 54, after teaching the first half of 54 says that those who were listening, they were astonished. And they began speaking and asking these rhetorical questions concerning Jesus. Really, the first four of these five questions are purely rhetorical. They all assume the answer. The fifth of them, they really don't know the answer to. Matthew's emphasis here in verse 54, at least his emphasis first, really is on their speaking. And there's good reason for this. Why would he emphasize what they are saying in their words? Well, it has to do with the demonstration of their unbelief. Matthew emphasizes what the people of Nazareth are saying about Jesus. That's particularly important in light of chapter 12, verses 33 through 37, where we learn that a person, what a person says about Jesus is indicative of their heart and their standing before God. Go ahead and turn there. Just flip back a couple pages to chapter 12, verse 33. You see, what someone says about Jesus identifies the real nature of a person's inward disposition whether they are a true child of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you spend enough time around a person, despite how they may act at times, you begin to hear things that they say and the words that are said begin to reveal their inward thinking. You begin to catch and understand their theology. You begin to see and understand their belief system. You begin to see how truly loving and gentle they are. It's one thing to show up and put on a show for a short period of time, but to be around someone and to really begin observing day in and day out how they speak belies so much about a person's heart and their inward disposition. 
For this reason, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. He's talking to the religious leaders here when he says, you brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so it's in light of this teaching that makes perfect sense that Matthew is focused upon what is it that they say about Jesus Christ. Because that is going to be indicative of what they believe about Jesus Christ. Matthew records that their speaking arose from astonishment or amazement. This is perhaps one of the sadder but very important lessons to learn. And it's that to be amazed, to be impressed, to be astonished, not just in the book of Matthew, but outside of it, is not an indication of belief. One can be taken in by teaching. One can be taken in by enjoyable fellowship and show initial excitement, astonishment, wonder. But that in and of itself is not an indication of saving faith. It can be amazement, wonder, and all, but it is not an indication of belief. And it's really, it's an important reminder for us that to be impressed or amazed does not indicate a change of heart. The true nature of a person will be revealed in time through their fruit, which, yes, includes words and actions, not just their initial response and amazement. Often, but not always, those amazed are like the seeds planted in the rocky soil that we looked at a few weeks ago that spring up quickly, but they wither and die off. And that is not to downplay excitement and amazement. That is a good thing, and it should be cultivated when we see it. Initial earnestness, though, should be watched carefully and, in, and encouraged. But again, that initial amazement and excitement needs to be carefully refined over time. You know, a good example of this, just drawing from recent events in the past few years in our modern culture, is the apparent conversion and excitement that the whole evangelical world had around Kanye West and his popular Sunday services that sprang up a couple years ago before COVID. Many Christian leaders immediately wanted to elevate Kanye and make him something of a Christian banner to rally behind. And again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying he is or is not a believer, but there is much to be concerned about with regard to the fruit of his life if he is a true believer. It's also interesting that in spite of what may be at best, questionable fruit, God used Kanye in some very interesting ways. In fact, the pastor who was frequently preaching the sermons during those Sunday services, Kanye would get up, he would say something, but he had a pastor get up there and preach. It's actually a man I know, I went to seminary with. And he was a, he's a sound expositor. And so, perhaps more despite or in spite of Kanye, the gospel was proclaimed during those services. And I praise the Lord for that. However, you know, that was despite Kanye, not because of him. It's part of God's workings and plan, but not itself an indication of Kanye's faith. In fact, 
over the past couple of years have been more and more discouraging things than encouraging things. But when he first showed an interest in the, the things of Christ and the things of the gospel, there was that almost these two camps, and it felt like there was almost nobody in between. It was either wanting to raise him up as a Christian banner, or it was pure skepticism and cynicism. It really seemed to be a knee-jerk response to those who were rallying behind Kanye, immaturely and prematurely. But again, skepticism and cynicism also isn't the right way to treat someone who claims to be a new believer and is excited about the gospel, regardless of whether you are certain yet whether it's true faith. Really, the right response lies somewhere in the middle to, to pray for someone like that, to encourage them, to help direct that excitement, but to avoid putting them into a place of leadership or influence until they have been more firmly grounded in the truth and tested with time. It's the same reason that leadership in the church should not be comprised of new converts. Paul concludes his summary list of requirements for elders when writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.6, saying, as a final reminder, and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now again, all this doesn't mean that all outward excitement and emotion is a bad thing or that one's outward excitement and amazement is wrong. It's just a reminder Particularly here in this text, it is a reminder not to measure everything by the outward excitement and initial expressions of a person. Encourage them, pray for them, come alongside them. In fact, let's be honest, those who have been in the church for a long time could use a little more initial excitement. A little more energy at times. We shouldn't quelch it, but should encourage it and direct it appropriately. But you see, the nature of the Nazarene's crowd, Nazarene crowd's amazement is quickly made evident by their expressions of incredulity mixed with unbelief. The end of verse 54 through verse 56 highlights five rhetorical questions that the crowds in Nazareth ask, which help us to think about who Jesus really is. And it reveals their unbelief. And as it reveals their unbelief, these expressions of incredulity help to clarify and really remind us what a true disciple of Jesus Christ believes about him. And so in that way, it's instructive and helpful for us as it reminds us of these things this morning. Yes, it stands against the sad backdrop of their unbelief, but it is helpful for us to remember these things this morning. So as we look at these five expressions mixed with amazement and unbelief, we'll use them to note what is what it is that they are responding to and what this teaches us about who Christ is. The first question they ask is, where did this man get his wisdom and his miraculous powers? He's a villager, they are saying, just like them. In view of his family connections, their thinking, his, his rightful place is here in the village, not going about, drawing crowds, turning water into wine, multiplying fish and loaves. But he should be doing the thing villagers do. We know this man. He has no business teaching people, doing miracles. In their minds, they needed to cut him down to size. Their question is not unlike that of the religious leaders in chapter 12 who declared that Jesus must be in league with Satan, denying the divine power or the divine source of his power. And yet, as we were reminded back in chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus had already proclaimed that something greater than Solomon and his wisdom had arrived. 
And so we know the answer to this rhetorical question. They ask it, assuming that, like the religious leaders, this can't be of God, when the reality is that the wisdom is from God, whose reign Christ is inaugurating. So our first reminder, in light of the response of these Nazarenes is that Jesus' wisdom and power are from God. This is something that every true believer, true disciple should affirm and attest. And should be able to say without hesitation, Jesus' power is from God because he is the Son of God, because he is God. Second question the crowds ask is, is this not the carpenter's son? There's something of an irony in this question Because they're asking a question that Joseph himself emphatically denied. In fact, Joseph determined to separate from Mary secretly because he knew this was not his son. And yet he raised him and cared for him as his son in his own house. But again, this was not his biological son. As you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew uses close familial language for Jesus' mother, his brothers, his sisters. Four times in chapter 2, Matthew refers to Mary as the mother of Jesus. However, with regard to Joseph, Matthew is very careful to ever avoid stating or using familial language that would suggest Jesus is Joseph's son. Matthew knows no father for Jesus other than the heavenly father. Joseph knew no true father for Jesus other than the heavenly father. Yes, he was entrusted with caring for this child. But he knew the divine origin of this son. So the second reminder from the unbelief of the Nazarenes, from the incredulity that they express, is the reminder that Jesus is the Son of God. This may seem like a small thing, especially if you've grown up in the church for a long time. But what you may not realize is how essential this is to salvation. Because if Jesus is anyone other than God incarnate, if he is anyone other than the Son of God, then that sacrifice on the cross was not efficacious for you and me. Because it took the Holy Son of God dying for us to bring the forgiveness and the propitiation that is the payment for sin that would satisfy the wrath of God. Nothing less then the Son of God's death could do that. So if this is not the Son of God, then we do not have hope. And we are still under the wrath of God. Thirdly, the crowds ask, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Now, before we look at this question in too much detail, I want to show something. This is a parenthetical. You're getting this for free this morning. This didn't come with the sermon. But it notes something concerning the historicity and the reliability of the Gospels. You see, these names that are used are not just haphazard. These names that are used here as well as all of the biblical names you find in the Gospels and outside of the Gospels and the Epistles the names correspond perfectly to the commonality, in fact, the percentage of commonality of the use of names in the ancient Near East at this time. 
So, and by that I mean that, you know, here we are in a small corner of the world, a relatively unimportant corner of the world by Roman standards. And you've got your James, your Johns, and your others. And there's a, you know, we look at this now. You know, when you're getting ready to name your child, you look and see what is the percentage of names, what's the most common popular name today, and it lists them by percentages. We have a bunch of extra biblical writings. And when we, when we look through those extra biblical writings at the same time period, going back just before and leading into the first century BC, uh, from first century BC into first century AD, we can see what the most common names were, the second most common, third most common, so on and so forth. And what is fascinating is that the frequency with which names occur in the Gospels and in the New Testament align perfectly with the percentage and the commonality of those names that we find in extra-biblical writings. Now, why is this so important? It's because you can't make something like that up. If you didn't write this, if this was not written, if it was not recorded, if it was not transmitted at that time, it would have been nearly impossible to have accomplished this feat, to have made up names and the frequency of names so that it aligns perfectly with the frequency with which we find these same names in extra-biblical writings. Because remember, they didn't have computers to create and figure out what the exact percentages were like we do today. And so it's one of those just interesting and fascinating affirmations and reminders of the historicity of Scripture, that it is accurate, that it is true, that it is reliable in every word and in every expression. Not only that, that even this last name Judas, it would have a couple of different spellings. We find those different spellings in Scripture itself, just like we do in the extra-biblical writings. Only someone with an intimate and immediate familiarity, such as Matthew, with this area during the time it claims to have been written, would have been able to correctly record the names so that it matched what we know to be the common usage of names and dispersion of names at that time. Well, ending that, closing that parenthesis, this third rhetorical question identifies Mary as Jesus' mothers. And the brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and the Nazarene crowds are technically correct, or at least mostly. They should have added half-brothers. They're technically correct. This is the family of Jesus, but they err in thinking that this piece of family information, the fact that there is some biological relation, has any significance for understanding who Jesus is and how important Jesus is. Why are they referencing the family names? It's because we know them, they're not special, so Jesus can't be special. But as we've already seen, Jesus has offered that his own family has no special status in relation to himself at the end of chapter 12. In fact, Jesus is redefining the most significant relationships on this earth and reorienting them around the kingdom of God. And at this time, the members of his own family are likely not disciples. Perhaps only Mary, his mother, who treasured these things in her heart from the early days when the angels had appeared. We know that his half-brothers did not yet believe in him. Though through both later scripture... 1 Corinthians describes that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to his half-brother James. We know that Jude wrote, uh, Jude or Judas wrote Jude, that final book before Revelation. We believe that the rest of his family became believers after his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. But at this time, there is no special status, no special relationship 
Nothing about them that should indicate or give any, any validity one way or the other to Jesus' significance. In fact, what we're reminded of is that the family of Jesus is defined not by blood relations, but through faith in Christ, repentance, faithful discipleship, and doing the will of the Father. If you want to know the measure of Christ, you look to those who are truly his family. They were looking in the wrong place. That's why we're called Christians. It was used originally derogatorily because it was originally ascribed to those who claimed to be Christ's, you little Christs. But you see, Christians liked that term because that was exactly who they served. And they were called to look like Christ, to imitate Christ, to imitate others as they follow after Christ. The fourth question, by the way, is very similar to the third with regard to his sisters. They are all with us, aren't they? It's the same line of reasoning, the same line of thinking. They're with us. We know them. We know who they married. Again, there's, they may be nice girls, but there's nothing special about them, so Jesus can't be special. But like the previous question concerning the mother and brothers, the true sisters of Jesus are not defined by biological relationships or blood, but they become, but it's by those who have become daughters of God through belief and discipleship and in doing the will of the Father. And notice this very important point that comes out of both this third and fourth rhetorical question. In light of the unbelieving response of the crowds, we see this. No one has any claim to Jesus by any right or by birth, or by blood, or by proximity to any other person. Only, the only way to inherit the kingdom of God, the only means of salvation, is individually through Jesus Christ. You are not saved because your father was saved, or your grandfather was saved, or your brother is a pastor. You are not saved, you are not brought into the family of God simply because your parents are Christians. Faith is individual. Only those who recognize their poverty of spirit in faith and come to him in repentance for comfort and refreshing will receive anything from him. Well, the final question of the crowds asked is this, whence then does this man have all these things? I think they have no idea the answer to this one. This one isn't so much rhetorical as it is exasperation. And again, they may be hinting the fact that since we know there's nothing special about them and we're going to deny this is from God, yes, it, really the only other option is that of the religious leaders, that it's of Satan. But ultimately, they're looking for a reason to not believe. As John Calvin notes, they look for a veil to hide the glory of God and they find it by looking at Jesus through his earthly family. They're trying to find a way to hide themselves from the true revelation of who God is. Unbelief always tries to make an excuse. And here they are trying to make an excuse. And they find that veil, that way to shield themselves from the truth by hiding him behind his family. Making an excuse here. Because of their unbelief, because of their hardness of heart, the people in the synagogue do not recognize the true answer to this question. They are left perplexed. And yet this final question reveals the fifth reminder concerning Jesus. And that is that he has all these things because he is the son of God. Where do they come from? 
They come from his divine nature. They come from his father. He did not receive them from Joseph or from his human family or from the place that reared him. And unable to reconcile their unbelief and with their familiarity with Jesus to the miracles they're now seeing, to the wisdom they're now hearing, Jesus becomes to them a stumbling, an offense. It's that word scandal, scandalon. Mark Twain once observed, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. And the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. He has fooled them into thinking Jesus is just a man. These Nazarenes, and so many like them through the centuries, do not want to be shaken from their unbelief. And in their blindness, in the darkness of their sin, they stumble over the very means of salvation that has been offered to them. What is abundantly clear as we look at verse 57 is that Jesus becomes the litmus test. He becomes the watershed. What one believes about Christ determines one's eternity. If you will not accept Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of mankind, then he becomes the rock of stumbling, leading to eternity in hell under the wrath of God, as we discussed last week. Turn with me. Take a right in your Bibles over to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2, beginning in verse 5. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. But notice this, the effect this same stone has upon those who do not believe. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for you who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they are also appointed. Paul says something very similar in Romans 9.33 where quoting Isaiah, he says, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Unbelievers stumble over Jesus Christ. Because of their stumbling, Jesus utters what has become a well-known colloquialism, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. You see, this rejection in Nazareth was simply a foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of the national rejection that would take place in Jerusalem leading up to his crucifixion. It's the foreshadowing of the rejection that continues to take place in so many who have heard the message of salvation and yet refuse to believe. Jesus' closing words to the people of Nazareth are sad and sobering. And if, as I believe, the events in Luke 4 were a separate event, Jesus has actually already repeated this statement to them. In some ways, he's uttering a final condemnation, serving as himself the second witness, where Jesus closes by repeating the same refrain he uttered before when he was with them when they tried to drive him off a cliff, where he said that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. So he's confirmed it to them a second time that the people of Nazareth will not repent and their unbelief 
has been sealed. So Matthew closes by noting that Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. He had done some. He had done enough for them to wonder at them and wonder how this person that they know, who couldn't be the Son of God, how he could possibly do these things. But once they had sealed their unbelief, once they had uttered these questions, once their, their speech and their words had revealed the true nature of their hearts, the hardness that was there, well, Jesus was no showman. He was no charlatan. He did not perform miracles to entertain a crowd, but rather to demonstrate the nearness of the kingdom of God, the very kingdom that they had rejected as they rejected its king. The hard-heartedness of the people of Nazareth shut them off from the benefits of the kingdom of God, both now and in eternity. By the way, there's an important reminder for us there, too. There is a similar, not same, but similar reminder that our familiarity with the things of God, our taking for granted the things that we experience when we come together, when we study the Bible, the ease with which we can open Scripture and look at it. We have the ability to develop a callousness to the things of God, a lack of sensitivity to the things of God. And no, no true believer will lose their salvation, but you will miss many of the benefits of being a child of God if you become callous to those things, if you allow familiarity to breed a, a sort of standoffishness a coldness to the things of God. We need to fight against that familiarity, fight against that taking things for granted. How do you do this? It's a good question. We've talked before about there's this reciprocal this activity that takes place through our repentance and our obedience through doing the things that God has called us to do. On the one hand, it feels very rote sometimes. And yet, doing the right thing and doing it with the right motives doesn't mean I always feel it. I appreciate Jonathan Edwards as he distinguishes affections from emotions. We don't always have the emotion that's there, and yet I know I need to love God, and so I'm going to do what is right and what he has called me to do. And the wonderful thing that takes place is that activity warms our affections. It warms our sensitivity to God. It kindles the fires of our love for God so that we want to do more. And as we do more, we feel that even greater and that warmth even more. And so yes, it's hard sometimes to wake up in the morning and pick up your Bible and read it. I get it. But do it. Not because you feel like you've got to check off your list and God is going to hate you somehow if you don't. He's your Father who loves you. Do it because you know He's your Father who loves you. And you know it's right. And watch what happens as you do that, as you, as you take the time, you set aside the time to pray, as you make time in your busy schedule to serve others, and watch as your affections are kindled and your love for God, what at times may grow colder, watch as it is warmed, as you delight to be with God's people, as you delight to serve Him together, as you delight to speak about the things of God. This interaction between Jesus and those of his hometown has reminded us of several truths about Christ and who he is and what we must believe about him. I'd be remiss if I didn't say this morning, if you do not believe these things about Jesus Christ, if you do not know him this way, then I ask of you, I plead with you to repent, 
to call to the Lord, to come to him, have a poverty of spirit, saying, Lord, I can't do anything to earn my salvation. Lord, I, I need you to do this. And he said he will not turn any away. In fact, the very desire for that is a gift of God. But turn and repent of your sin this morning. Believe on Jesus Christ as the author and finisher of your faith. Our text this morning also testifies to what the prophet Isaiah said would be true of Christ when he wrote Isaiah 53. This is going to be a great place to close this morning because it's going to help orient our minds and our thoughts as we head into Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Just turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 53 as we read the very first few verses. Think about this in relation to his childhood and his rearing and what these Nazarenes thought of him. I'm going to read the first six verses, but it's the first three particularly that pertain to our passage this morning, and we'll close with these words. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We'll close there in prayer. And this is a wonderful place for us to think and meditate upon as we head into Palm Sunday and Passion Week. Father, we thank you for the reminders this morning, the sad reminders, the stark, dark reminders of the unbelief of your hometown. And yet, Father, it does give us hope. Father, it also reminds us of our need to continually cultivate our love for you. Father, we thank you for these reminders this morning. We thank you that you answer prayer. We thank you that you are a God who draws near to us, to forgive us, that you love us, that you have not forsaken us. All of these things are true and so much more. Thank you for these reminders this morning. In your name, amen.